0: After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Conservative Party Member of Parliament from 1983 until 1997, writer and television personality Edwina Currie famously became Junior Health Minister for two years and served as MP for South Derbyshire from 1983 until 1997. After Parliament, Edwina reinvented herself as a television personality, appearing on reality shows including Hell's Kitchen, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and Strictly Come Dancing. I caught up with the author to talk politics, entertainment, and recollections on an unparalleled career in the public eye. Ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Edwina Curry. We'll get on to your major career highlights in a moment, but I just wanted to get your take on the current political climate. What are the challenges facing cabinet ministers today in light of issues surrounding Brexit?
1: I must say, I'm very glad I'm not there at the moment. And um, I don't envy anybody that's in the process of trying to do negotiations or trying to sell the various uh, options to the House of Commons. The House of Commons is in a very um, scratchy and miserable place right now. It's extremely difficult to agree on anything very much. And the public, of course, are getting impatient because the public have voted and the public want the politicians to get on with it. So the challenges are coming from all sides. Um, My own feeling is that the best thing to do is plod on. We inch forward, we get forward. If we leave with, quotes, no deal and quotes, I don't think that would be a disaster. I really don't. I think the British people and business people are much more resilient and imaginative than that. And if it means that we have to get our lettuces or tomatoes or fromage from somewhere else and it doesn't come through Dover, I mean, big shrug. I'm just a, a customer as far as that's all concerned. I don't mind where it comes from as long as it's good quality, tastes good and does me good.
0: Perfect. Now, um, what made you want to become an MP?
1: I come from a a family that isn't immersed in politics, but politics is all around us. I grew up in the city of Liverpool, very outward looking, always very well aware of the outside world, very mixed. Um, you, You know, it wasn't the same as growing up in a small village in Dorset, I can tell you. I used to go to the cavern and listen to the Beatles and the music there. Everyone was very ambitious, very um, determined to do well and to work hard and try and get on. Uh, That meant that most of us left Liverpool. But also the family were Orthodox Jewish people. And so we were also surrounded by those who had lost close relatives in the Holocaust. And I can remember guests at my parents' table who had tattoo marks on their arms. they had been. Uh, they were Holocaust survivors. They had been in the concentration camps, and so you couldn't grow up in that kind of environment and say, "Oh, I'm not going to get involved. Uh, politics has nothing to do with me. Politics is to do with everybody." And uh, Jewish people, especially, are well aware that if there's a failure of government or if government is hostile, then they're often the first, literally in the firing line. Um, when I went to university, I originally wanted to be a scientist. My hero was uh, my heroine, if you like, was Marie Curie, the great woman scientist. And I soon realised that I was never going to be anything like that standard. Because I'm in, in a in a laboratory, I'm really a bit of a menace. I break things. <laughs> um, oh, talked to my my uh, senior tutor and the principal of the college, and uh, the question was, well, what do you do in your spare time? well, I, oh, I go to politics lectures. I'm oh, very interested good Lord, well, um, you can do that for your main degree if you want to, so I could change subjects. And that was a little unusual in those days, because you apply to a faculty in a university and you got stuck in that faculty, and I knew friends who got stuck doing subjects they really hated. And there I was, suddenly finding myself actually being encouraged to study the stuff I enjoyed. That also meant that I met a lot of people from a political background, including the children of... Uh, serving MPs. And I realised that, well, I was probably about as smart as they were. They all planned to be members of Parliament someday. Why shouldn't I do the same? The the obvious reasons why not didn't bother me. One obvious reason when I was actually looking for a seat was, well, there were only 19 women out of 650 in the House of Commons. So why do you think you're good enough to be one of that tiny number? And it it just seemed to me like that was other people's problems, in the sense that they were being prejudiced and choosing the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, All they needed was a little fat scouse lady like me to be their Member of Parliament. And bless them, the miners of South Derbyshire decided that I was just what they were looking for. I think I was as surprised as they were, <laughs> and we won it.
0: Perfect. Now, serving for the constituency of South Derbyshire from 1983 until 1997, what did this teach you about the significance of maintaining communities and helping them to thrive?
1: The first thing that you realise with a sinking feeling when you become an MP is that your constituents are not clones of you. And that um, actually you're representing a hugely diverse bunch of people. Uh, you, most of them, in my case, were going to be older because I was fairly, fairly young. And they would have very diverse life experiences and they have opinions, but they're coming to you for help. And the, the key thing was to find ways in which I could, outside that rather uh, formal relationship, I could also find out what was going on and what they thought about things. So I toddled along to the Miners' Welfare Association, which had a sort of social club, and asked politely if um, I could uh, come in and, from time to time and have a drink there. And uh, I would give people an opportunity in a more relaxed atmosphere to tell me what they thought. And boy, they did. Uh, uh, I we can found imagine. ourselves into the, into the minor strike almost right away. And these people decided they weren't going to strike. They took a ballot and they decided that they didn't think that the strike was a good weapon to use to resolve the dispute. And so for a year, I found myself representing non-striking miners who eventually were part of the Union of Democratic Mineworkers. They hated Scargill. Well, they weren't going to say that in public, were they? But they said that to me. I hate Mm -hmm. (laughs) him.
0: Now, as junior health minister, you were involved in one of the most significant food-related pandemics of the 1980s. Looking back, how potentially devastating could the Salmonella outbreak have been?
1: Interesting circumstances because the uh, salmonella outbreak that was based on a new version of salmonella, which of course is a very common bug, but normally it doesn't cause much damage. But this new version was very virulent and it made people seriously ill to the point of actually killing some people. And it was uh, very widespread, We confirming 500 cases a week, that's 30,000 in a 12-month And I think we killed something like 60-odd people that year. And that meant that something was going to have to be done about it. The distressing thing was that the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food simply went into flat denial mode and didn't believe it was happening. Um, So you had the two departments, Department of Health and the Department responsible for food and agriculture, absolutely at loggerheads. That's a recipe for disaster. And it was my strong feeling that if we didn't deal with it Promptly, then the following summer, we could have a pandemic on our hands because we would have, uh, you know, homemade ice cream and homemade mayonnaise and uh, all that sort of thing. And it didn't seem to me it was my job to fill our hospitals with desperately ill people and use every kidney dialysis machine in the country, which was already happening during that winter. So I told everybody. I ignored uh, the instructions not to say anything, and I told everybody. And I'm glad that I did. This is not the recommended way to deal with a crisis like this. The recommended way is for the most senior people around to agree a protocol and for the most senior person to take responsibility. But when Margaret Thatcher was asked uh, what she'd had for breakfast, she said scrambled eggs. There was an element of unreality about it all. Um, It was 10 years after that, before the egg industry, the British Egg Producers Council came to me and said, we were right. We, we're now dealing with this. Will you, will you stand up and say so? And I do. And I'm very glad to say that now in Britain, we have some of the best, keenest and most tasty and health-giving eggs in the world. There you go. Lovely.
0: I suppose your departure from the House of Commons in 1997 coincided with the birth of celebrity culture and reality television? To what extent has your continuous celebrity status surprised you?
1: I wasn't surprised to be a celebrity when I first entered the House of Commons. By then, we were up to trumpet sound 23 women members of Parliament <laughs> out of 650 odd. Uh, and so we tend to get celebrity status almost right away. This increased after 1986 when the House was televised for the first time. It's not that long ago. Uh, I certainly voted for it and then we ladies could all wear bright colors and we really stood out from the green benches. I'd always done a lot of TV uh, partly because being in the Midlands and the North you tended to get to know, uh, there wasn't as much competition as there would be for example uh, in London so you tend to get to know the broadcasters and journalists on a personal basis And indeed, uh, when I lost my seat in 1997, along with about 200 other conservatives, uh, I found myself being asked if I'd like to become TV presenter and radio presenter, which I did for a while. Uh, That that tends to mean that your status remains high. Oh, and I'd had a number one bestseller. I'd written some slightly naughty novels, so I was a kind of E.L. James figure for a while as well. I enjoy doing all the celebrity TV stuff. It's very, very clever. You know, they employ games makers. Certainly, I'm a celebrity, does. And um, you learn a lot. You meet some extremely interesting people. You get very well paid. And it's easy. It's easy. As long as you keep your head and um, play the game properly. And remember that, you know, it's not a cooking program. It's not a dancing program. It's an entertainment program. Mm. Uh, and therefore your your psychology should not be in any way challenged. And you come out the other end with another, well, 11 million fans. Mm. How bad is Not bad.
0: And speaking of keeping your head, of course you even battled Gordon Ramsay in Hell's Kitchen in 2004. How did you remain so level-headed throughout that?
1: Well, I enjoyed uh, Gordon Ramsay's programme. I, I don't cook very much at home. I'm as bad in the kitchen as I was in the laboratory when I was a student. I break things. I'm really not very good at it. My husband is, mm. <laughs> he is the home chef. But when the invitation came, uh, it, he said, how can you say no? People will get their, uh, you know, their right on to learn how to cook with Gordon Ramsay. And you're getting paid to do it. For heaven's sake, go and do it. Uh, and so I did very much in that sort of Uh, that attitude of mine that here was a lovely opportunity. Uh, We still cook some of the recipes. Gordon, off camera, is a much nicer person than he is on camera. Anyway, I come from Liverpool. I've been sworn at by people all my life. So that doesn't bother me. I'm not exactly a shrinking violet. And um, much to my surprise, I found that if I stood up to him, first of all, I felt better. Secondly, it made a much better program. And thirdly, the public seemed to like it. So, yeah, that's how I ended up being not quite a finalist. I ended up in the last four and, um, yeah, made a lot of friends too.
0: Brilliant. And in 2017, you appeared in Morphos' The Baby Boomer's Guide to Growing Old. Uh, what did this teach you about the ageing process?
1: Well, the Baby Boomer's Guide to Growing Old was a wonderful program, and I wish they'd do another series. Um, each of us was encouraged, well, to talk about, how life was. I was one of the youngest. Uh, I think several of them were in their 80s. They were absolutely magnificent. Um, But then we were also encouraged to do something outside our comfort zone. And because I had loved pop music as a kid and rhythm and blues and so on, they decided it was about time I learned about punk. And so I was all dressed up as a punk rocker in black leather with pink hair. And off I went to the basement of a, a club in Birmingham where I was taught by Charlie Harper. It was a lovely man, absolutely wonderful. Um, I said to him, he's 73, Charlie, and he'd been doing punk rock. He said, we were just before Sex Pistols, he says, but um, the trouble is that um, they they sort of hit the scene in a big way and um, UK subs is his band. He said, we just kept going. So I said, how do you keep going? He says, you stay sober. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned a lot. I think if you're going to enjoy yourself in old age, the first thing is... Just say yes to most things. I won't say yes to uh, skating on ice or jumping off a ski jump. I'll break something, Mm -hmm. for him say. Probably me. Um, I won't do anything dangerous. I won't go swimming with sharks or anything like that. But anything that's fun, I'll have a crack at. The other thing is relax and enjoy it. You may not be any good at it, but what the heck? You know all about life, and that's much more important.
0: Absolutely. And you're also an accomplished author, first writing your painfully honest diaries in 2012 before penning political skullduggery fiction. How does this satisfy the inner political analyst in you?
1: It's great fun writing political fiction because you can tell the truth. Uh, you can dredge from your memory or from your psyche or from the, the, the little dark box that everyone has inside, which means i hate that person or I really would like to get my own back someday. Uh, and uh, often these are fascinating characters, especially if they have deep flaws, and you can then play with them. And the scenes that you make up, uh, or they may well be the ones that weren't made up. They may they may exactly have happened just like that, but you wouldn't actually uh, wish to admit to that. You can put yourself in, in one of the characters. There's a sense in which, though, as one of my editors pointed out, the odds are there's a bit of you in all the characters and that um, you may well be surprised. Not always pleasantly surprised at what comes out. I hadn't realized that I was going to write very sexy scenes, but I thought, well, you know, mice as well. <laughs> and they've been very successful. Um, the, the diaries are a different matter because I had kept a diary from 1987. As soon as we won the election, and that was Margaret Thatcher's third time, which was unprecedented in, in recent uh, times, it was obviously we were on to something very, very special. And I felt that with a ringside seat, I had a duty to make a note of it and to record how I felt about it. it, it a lot more goes down. You think your diary becomes a kind of friend, and so you tend to open up in a way that... You wouldn't if you're writing a newspaper article or if you're being interviewed for example um, and then years later it seems relevant and uh, to the point often a bit pungent uh, and that's why they got published as well i haven't had time recently to write anything much i, I write newspaper articles i did one the other day i'm quite proud of which was um, how the wi would sort out brexit because the queen had been to the wi in Sandringham and had told us all how to behave and to be nice to each other and so the Daily Telegraph asked if I would write an article showing how the WI would sort out Brexit. And uh, so I did.
0: Oh, we'll, have to, we'll have to dig that one out and find that. Uh, you've recently appeared on the BBC's Celebrity Mastermind, answering questions on your specialist subject, Nancy Astor. Now, what is it about her that is so inspirational?
1: Nancy Astor was the first woman Member of Parliament to take her seat, and that was in 1919, and she was a Member of Parliament right through till 1945. She was in many ways a very remarkable lady. Uh, She wasn't the first to win a seat in Parliament. That was Constance Markovitz, who was a Sinn Féin, who was also a remarkable lady. She went off and became a member of the Doyle, the first Irish Parliament seems to have fallen out with just about everybody. But she didn't take her seat because as a Sinn Féin, she didn't take the the oath um, of allegiance to the Queen. But Nancy Astor did. And um, she was an American. She was from Virginia. Her family had been ruined in the Civil War in America. And then her father had made a lot of money at last out of railroads. She was married and divorced. Her first husband had been an alcoholic and had knocked her about. She'd fled with a, a, a young baby. Her second husband, uh, Lord Astor, well he wasn't Lord Astor when they got married, he was a Member of Parliament. And um, her job then was to look after him, which she did beautifully down in Plymouth. When his father died and he became a peer, he couldn't carry on, so she sort of took up the reins. The people of Plymouth liked her and they asked her to be their Member of Parliament. And she didn't hesitate. I think it's absolutely wonderful. You know, there are so many opportunities for all sorts of people, whether it's, it's um, uh, younger people, older people, uh, black, white, Muslim, male, female, able, disabled. But too often people don't take the opportunity. It's the person who says, yeah, I'll have a go to I'll give it a go. I don't have to be the best ever. I will do my very, very best. And uh, in so doing, um, being a pioneer and then helping to break down those barriers. For those who come afterwards. And that's what she did. She campaigned against alcohol all her life. She was the she brought in legislation that uh, banned the sale of uh, spirits to anybody under the age of 16. Legislation, which 100 years later is still in place. Uh, she campaigned on violence and marriage, because she knew all about that. She campaigned for women police to continue. Uh, and um, she was always a bit of a sucker for any anyone that came forward and that really needed help. Uh, lovely, lovely woman in many, many ways. Uh, she was. She had a bit of a blind spot when it came to um, the uh, the Nazis in Germany. That was the only thing. She was an appeaser. She saw good in everybody, and therefore thought that maybe we should be making a peace treaty with Germany. And she voted against Churchill several times in the House of Commons during the war. So the later part of her career was not glorious. But uh, as a pioneer and making it easier for the next woman that comes in, the next woman that comes in, she did uh, she did good. So I was pleased to have her as my special subject.
0: Why do you think she isn't remembered so much now?
1: Why isn't Nancy Astor remembered so much now? Partly because it's a long time ago. I mean, she retired. The year before I was born, and I'm old. Um, and partly, I think, because she was on the wrong side on the debates in the 1930s about Nazism and, and appeasement. And uh, she was, she did that because she was a Christian Scientist. She was one of a very small group of uh, very worthy, very decent people who hated communism and who thought that almost anything that opposed communism was a good thing to do. Um, They were wrong. They were wrong. Uh, It was Churchill, much more shrewdly, who realized that the dictators were rather similar, whatever the label that they had on them. He was on his own in the 1930s. He was ostracized in the House of Commons in the 1930s. But when war came and he became prime minister... Uh, most people, I think, swung around behind him. and he represented the will of the British people very, very well indeed in resisting Nazism. Unfortunately, there was still a handful of people, still about 20 people in the House of Commons, mostly on the Conservative side, who still thought he was wrong. And Nancy was one of them. And what tends to happen if you're on the wrong side of history is you get airbrushed out of it. I think that's a shame.
0: Mm. Now, looking back at your career, what is your proudest achievement?
1: Um, my proudest achievement, my goodness, apart from actually getting in, mm-hmm. which was quite an ask in back in the early 80s when there were so few women MPs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, when I was a minister, I, was, I used my time as well as I could. And I helped to bring in much more preventive work in health. At that time, we ran the health service and hospitals treated sick people. If we could uh, detect Some problems uh, earlier, then we could probably be much better at curing them. The obvious ones were breast cancer and cervical cancer, the two women's cancers. And we had systems uh, for screening. And I brought in the first nationwide breast cancer screening and cervical cancer screening systems. And we were the first country in the world that did both. And both of them have had an enormous effect on um, cutting the death rate. There's a little bit of a a kerfuffle at the moment because the um, response rate for cervical cancer screening is a bit low and um, there's still a majority of people going for it uh, and that I think is because ministers really need to up the ante and campaign for it and um, maybe photographs having their tests or whatever, whatever it calls for you should do it. Um, if it means that you avoid uh, a, a murderous and horrible cancer like cervical cancer, mm. eat people's inside, it's a horrible thing to get, and it is, uh, has a high fatality rate. So that that's what I was uh, proudest of. I was also on the team that first combated AIDS, HIV, Um, very junior member of it. In fact, Norman Fowler, the Secretary of State, just looked at me and he said, no joke, Sidrina, this is deadly serious. Uh, but we did bring in the advertising campaign with the uh, Don't Die of Ignorance and the tombstones and so on. And we put out a leaflet in every household in the country 23 million leaflets. And as a result, the uh, infection rate stopped dead and the death rate started to uh, fall. And more recently, it's been good to see that now there's medication, the anti uh, retrovirus medication is now making it possible for people to live with HIV and perfectly safely and uh, to be uh, content with that. I'm very, very glad to see that. But those, those I think, were the main things I'd put uh, together. Oh, and then one other thing, of course, was 1994. Um, we had the debate on the age of consent for gay men because the law was highly discriminatory against gay men at that time. It wasn't against uh, lesbian women because Queen Victoria didn't think such a thing was possible a um, happily married lady with nine pregnancies. She couldn't understand why any woman would be more interested in a woman than a man. <laughs> um, so there was no legislation discriminating against women, but there was against gay men. And so we caught a debate in 1994, having prepared the ground very, very carefully. And we managed to get the age of consent down from 21 to 18. We just missed equality, which is a 16. But that happened later. And from there onwards, it was okay to be gay.
0: Fantastic. Now, finally, what is next for Edwina Curry?
1: What's next for Edwina Curry? Um, my husband's giggling behind me here. I suppose it's getting older. Um, getting older disgracefully, if I can. You know the saying, to be going <laughs> down gracefully. No, 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 I wouldn't want to be going down gracefully. Um, I'm looking forward to someday um, doing an orbit of the world at the Earth in a rocket ship That's, that would be lovely I'd love to see the world from on high and at uh, the rate we're all going it's going to be cheap enough to do that we've already bought an electric car we have a, a, a Tesla car which is plugged in right now um, absolutely love it I love cutting edge science I love to see what's going on I'm looking at hubby maybe I'll replace him with a robot that says yes ma'am no ma'am three bags full ma'am oh, you're gorgeous <laughs> he says he already does um, <laughs> oh
0: who knows? there you go okay that is fantastic thank you very much to our guest for being the subject of another beyond the title interview if you like this why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy don't forget to like our facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what i do thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another beyond the title interview